Welcome tonight to Matthias's Lot. Children are a blessing and, and they're a joy, and we love children at Matthias Lot. Um, let me pray for us, and we're going to go ahead and open up our word and get started here. Father, God, we love you, and we thank you for inviting us in to be a part of your family. God, is the greatest family that we could ever experience, that we could ever be a part of. We thank you for your covenant love that is expressed through the blood of Jesus in the way that you are calling your family towards yourself through salvation by his blood. And God, we're here tonight to celebrate that. We're here to gather around the worship and around the teaching of your word. Father, we know that the preaching and teaching of your word is a noble, honoring task to be able to take a part of. But Father, at the same time, if you don't come and if you don't speak to our hearts, all the preparation that I've put in, the time that I've put in, God, we will hear nothing and your body will hear nothing. And so, Father, I pray that you would move me out of the way. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would gaze upon us with your convicting eyes and you would cause us to see the richness of the Word of God and that the Spirit would move upon this place tonight and that we would walk away saying that we've experienced you and we've worshipped you and no one else and nothing else but you. In Jesus' name, amen. The uh, word tonight is Luke chapter 22, verses 54 to 62. I'm going to have a lot of them up on the screen as we go, um, but you're also invited to, to follow along, and you're also encouraged to take notes with us as well. As we begin this text, I want to read a quote to you, a quote that really had a lot of influence on me as I began to prepare this message. It was by a guy named John MacArthur. Many of you have probably heard of him. He's a pastor in California. You've maybe uh, heard or have the John MacArthur Study Bible. As he preached this message to his church, to his congregation, this was the quote that he, he shared as he began that message. And again, it has had a ton of influence on my preparation for this week. And so I want to share it with you and I want to wrestle with it as we begin. Here it is. There's no story of our Lord's dealings with his disciples that is as low and high as this one. There is no story that is as dark and light, as tragic and hopeful, as distressing and encouraging. This is the worst failure and the best recovery. Now, to say that there's no other story in all the New Testament, as we experience, as we get to read and see Jesus' life with his disciples, to say that there's no other story that encompasses the most triumph, the most joy, the most encouragement, while at the same time, the most desperation, the most darkness, the most despair, is to make an absolutely huge statement about the text that we're going to be experiencing and reading tonight. So why would John MacArthur make a statement like that about this text? Because tonight, as we read and as we grow together, we are going to witness the fall, the sin, the desperation and the darkness of one of the strongest believers of all time. Peter, the one who Jesus says that he will build his church on, the one who Jesus changed his name to be called the rock, 
we're going to see him deny Christ three times. A great, huge, discouraging sin. It's dark. It should be frightening. It should shake us to the core to think that a man that was so strong, a man that lived so much life with Jesus and that was called by God could fall so, so low. And at the same time, we're going to experience the triumphing love of Jesus as we see his sovereign plan unfold and as we see that his prayers to keep Peter and to cause his faith to be strong have indeed prevailed. And so in the midst of darkness, we see hope. We see sovereignty. And we see Jesus again as the great high priest. It's dark and it's discouraging because here's the deal. For every single one of us that is a follower of Christ in the room tonight, it's our story. We always have this propensity to believe that somehow we're the hero in the story. We're not the one who falls. We're not the one who fails. Let me tell you something tonight as we begin. The only hero in this story is Jesus. He's the hero. And Peter goes on and he does wonderful things, but hopefully tonight you'll be able to see the humanness of Peter and who he was. He's, Jesus is the hero. And so tonight as we read and as we wrestle and as you see how far Peter, fall, Peter falls, could you see your own sin amidst his? Could you see the times in your life where you've been tempted and where you've fallen into a dark place away from Christ? And in the midst of that, could you see Jesus afresh tonight? The way that he radically holds his call to himself in the midst of the most difficult time. So let's get into this. Verse 54. Then seizing him, they led him away, and they took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And a moment ago when Mark reminded us of this, Jesus is seized. That means that he is arrested in the garden after he has been there praying with the disciples. But what we know from this is that Jesus isn't just arrested, but that he gives himself over because this is a part of the plan that is unfolding as we see Jesus being taken to the cross. The night is dark. It's late. It's very, very cold. And as we see Jesus being arrested, and as we see him being taken to the high priest's house, the story begins to get confusing. If you read all the gospel accounts together, there's something that you're going to see in each one that, if you're like me, could cause you to have some questions and could cause you to wonder. You see, and we're going to go ahead and put all these together so you can see the differences. In Matthew's account, it tells us that Jesus is taken to the high priest Caiaphas. In Mark's account, all we see is that Jesus is taken to the high priest. We also see that in Luke, but in Mark, it includes that he's taken and the Sanhedrin is there. But in John's account, we see that Jesus is taken to the house of a man named Ananias. So there's some conflicting stories here. There's some differences. Now, 
when I was in high school, I just want to confess something to you. When I would read different gospel accounts and I would see that there was supposed to be Jesus going to this person's house, but then in another gospel account it said that Jesus went here, it would just cause my heart to like skip a beat. And it would cause there to just be this sickness inside of my stomach and I would just want to kind of read over it real quickly as if I didn't see it. Because what I would be thinking was, is is it possible that I just saw something in Scripture that contradicts? And if it contradicts, then it means that it may not be true. And, and if a little bit of the Bible isn't true, then maybe all the Bible isn't true. And then I would have this wrestling, like, I don't want to deal with that. And so I would just keep going. Friends, when we see things in Scripture that cause us to wrestle, don't run. Hit it head on. At Matthias Lot, we believe that all of Scripture is the inspired word of God. Every bit of it is true. Every bit of it has been spoken. It has been breathed by God. And if we're confident in that, then when we see things like this, it should cause us to say, okay, there's more to the story here that we're not seeing. There's more to the story that we're not experiencing. And so I want to take you on a journey for a few minutes to see what exactly is happening here and whose house is Jesus really going to after he's been arrested. Now, there is a man named Ananias. And Ananias is where we see Jesus being taken. If you read the account of John, it says that he is taken to that house first. Now, Ananias is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, and Caiaphas is the currently reigning high priest. Now, once you have been a high priest, you will always be called a high priest. It's kind of like if you've ever met a pastor who is in his 80s, when you talk to him and other people are around him that have been in his church, they still call him pastor. Like his name doesn't change. It's kind of like once you've been a president, still people call the president Mr. President, even after he's no longer serving as the president. There are certain titles that never go away. And so when you read the accounts of Matthew and Mark, or when you read the accounts of Mark and Luke, and it says that Jesus has gone to the high priest's house, it's still right to say that Ananias is the high priest because that's still what he would be called. And so you need to see this unfold in three different phases here. He's taken to Ananias' house first. And the reason that he's taken to Ananias' house is because they want to try to get some type of indictment against Jesus. They want to have some type of a false accusation that they will be able to take to Caiaphas, who is the current reigning high priest. You see, Ananias, because he's the father-in-law, he truly is the one that has a lot of power. And if he can be indicted in front of Ananias, then when he goes to Caiaphas, it will be that much easier to get a solid conviction. Going to Caiaphas would be phase two. And so when we see that Jesus goes to Caiaphas, that's also right. After he goes to Caiaphas, and they're able to get a conviction here in the middle of the night, which, by the way, there was no legal hearings in the middle of the night. True hearings could only be done during the day, and so everything that they're doing is undercover. Now, they're going to try to take this before Pilate, and they're going to try to say, see, we have a cause, we have a conviction, the, the court is all trumped up, they're jacked up, they're excited, and they're trying to bring Jesus and say, you know what, this man is guilty. We found him guilty. You need to find him guilty so he can be crucified. This is all part of the plan. 
So that's what they're seeking to do. So after we see Jesus going to the high priest, I want you to continue to read with me. Verse 55. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. And so Peter had been following here. And we know that he had been following at a distance. And Peter goes in to the courtyard. Now this courtyard is going to be a place where all these denials are going to happen. The courtyard is right in the middle of the house of Caiaphas and Ananias. You see, whenever somebody was very wealthy, it was very, very characteristic that a family would build a very large house. And in that large house, there would be one side of the family that would live in one wing, and there would be another side of the family that would live on another wing. And because these guys have been high priests, and we know that there was a lot of naughtiness going on in the temple, they've been taking a lot of money, so they have a lot of jack, all right? They've built really big houses. And in the middle of these two wings, there's a courtyard. And inside that courtyard is where we're going to see the rest of this story taking place. In order to get into that courtyard, you would have to be let in through a gate. And so Peter is let in through a gate. And he goes into the courtyard, and there's been a fire that's been kindled there. Now, we know that Peter doesn't follow Jesus alone because when we read John's account, we know that there's another that's with him. There had to be another with him because Peter in and of himself would not have been able to get into the courtyard because he did not know the, he did not know the chief priest. Okay, so he is allowed to come in to this temple courtyard because John knows the family. And John knows the maidservant that is there at the front gate. And so that's how Peter and John are both able to come in. Now, I want you to get into this story with me for just a moment. This is what's happening. As this fire is gathered in the middle of this courtyard, there are people that are standing around, possibly shoulder to shoulder, and the night's cool. And they're standing there together, seeking to keep warm. These men that are gathered around Peter, as John is off talking to the maidservant, these are the same men who have probably just come to take Jesus from the garden. I imagine them holding swords and possibly spears in their hand. And as the fire is flickering off of their faces and the air is cool and Peter's breathing and possibly shivering a little bit and you see the breath coming out of his mouth, this is a tense, scary moment. And up to this point, as we see Peter, we would say that this dude has been very, very confident. I mean, after all, all of the other disciples, other than Peter and John, they have hightailed it out of there. Peter and John are the only ones that have followed, right? And Peter has done something that seems very brave. He's come into the middle of the enemy, and he's trying to stay undercover because he wants to see what's going to happen to his friend, to his Savior, to Jesus. But the experience, the emotions that are rushing as he keeps recalling Jesus being arrested by an angry mob and now he sits in the midst of that angry mob, 
can you imagine his fear? Can you imagine how that strong confidence is beginning to fail? It's beginning to fade. Let's continue to read verse 56 to 57. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. So we see a servant girl break the stillness and break the silence. And what she says is as she's looking closely at him, she proclaims this man was with him. Now, oftentimes if I've thought about this story, I've imagined her like just kind of taking Peter to the side and saying, were you with him? But she is making a proclamation to the enemy. She is telling everyone this man was with him. Again, imagine Peter as he's trying to keep his head down and as he's trying to kind of turn his face so that the flickering doesn't give his face away and his expressions. And all of a sudden she breaks out and she says, hey, this guy's one of him, one of them. We know that this maidservant was actually the same maidservant who was at the gate as what the account of John tells us. This was the same one that's a friend of Peter that let Peter and John in. So it's possible for us to assume here maybe a little bit that she was just waiting for the opportunity to be able to blow his cover. If she knew Peter or if she knew John, she possibly already knew Peter and that Peter was one of Jesus' disciples. So maybe she's saying this because, because she wants some type of recognition, or maybe, as we see there in this passage, that she's been looking closely at him. Maybe she's just put two and two together. But can you imagine Peter? He's there by the fire. And have you ever been in one of those moments where you can just feel the stares of people on you? Like he's there and across the fire, he can just experience this young girl staring at him. And he maybe looks away and he looks back and she's still staring at him. And then she breaks the silence with the accusation, you're one of them. And everybody hears it. And so automatically, what's Peter's response? He says, woman, I don't know him. This Peter the one who told Jesus, I will go with you to the death. I will never leave you. I will always stand by you. Though all may go away, I will always be here. He doesn't even think. And in a moment, to protect himself in the midst of his fear, he denies knowing Jesus. That's the first denial. So let's continue to read verse 58. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you are one of them. Man, I am not Peter replied. Again, when you look at the other Gospels and you read this on the second denial, in the book of Mark, it says that the one who is making this accusation is the same maidservant that made the previous one. Well, in Matthew, it says that the person who makes this accusation is a different slave girl altogether. Seems like there's a contradiction there, right? And then, in Luke, the passage that we're seeing, look at it, how does Peter respond? He doesn't say woman again, does he? He says man. 
So it seems like we have three different representations here of the person who is giving the second accusation. Again, if your heart begins to sink and you begin to get this like sickness in your stomach because you think that Scripture is contradicting itself, stand strong. Stop being lazy. Open up the Word of God. Go get a commentary. Bust it out. Dig deeper. Try to understand. Try to figure out why it appears that Scripture could be contradicting itself. Again, you remember the first accusation. She accused Peter over the whole crowd. And so she's caused there to be this rumbling and to be this questioning. And so when you view all of the threads of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and when you put them all together, it's like each thread is coming together to make this beautiful tapestry. And you begin to see that indeed it is the same maidservant that's coming and bringing forth another accusation. But because of her first accusation, she's caused others to want to accuse him too. Because now they're all questioning. Because they're all remembering. Because they're all hearing his accent. Because they're all putting things together. And so there's a man that's accusing him. And so there's another slave girl that's accusing him. Many theologians say that Peter has walked away from the fire at this point and he's gone to a porch. And the crowd is actually following him. And they're following him, accusing him of being one of the disciples. Now, if you are wrestling with that, if you go and you read John, John says that they accused him. And so John's gospel brings all of it together, saying that there were many people that were accusing Jesus in this, or accusing Peter in this second denial. And what does Peter say? He says, man, I don't know, or I'm sorry, he says, man, I am not. Now let's continue on. Verse 59 to 60. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Seems like Peter's dialect would fit pretty well with ours. He's like, man, woman, not that any of you guys call women women but anyway um peter replied man i don't know what you're talking about and just as he was speaking the rooster crowed this is an intense moment as we begin to see this third denial we see that peter is back by the fire so he's moved in again maybe he's trying to move away from the mob that's accusing and from the mob that's following and he's back by the fire and it says that there is another one that is accusing him and this time when he accuses him it's not that he just accuses him like based upon some crazy assumptions no he says your accent is giving you away all the people that are sitting around here all the servants of the high priest we're all from jerusalem we all talk the same way You've got a different accent. It sounds like you're from Galilee or something. You're not one of us because he's probably talking. And this guy is overhearing him. And it's not just that the accent is giving Peter away. We find out in John that the man who is bringing this third accusation is actually a relative of Malchus. And so he possibly was standing there as he saw his relative get his ear cut off by Peter. 
And so not only is he listening to him talk, but he's gazing across the fire. He's seeing the flickering of the light in Peter's face. He's putting it all together and saying, you don't talk like us. You look like the guy that cut off my relative's ear. I know that you are one of his disciples. The facts are mounting. The crowd is increasing. The tension is building. And Peter is getting scared. Because every time that an accusation is brought, and every time that the facts continue to stack up, he is getting closer and closer to being caught and to being captured. And I would say that it's very possible that he can hear the blows that are coming to his friend, that are coming to his Savior, Jesus, as Jesus is standing trial. And we're not exactly sure who Jesus is with at this point, but we know that Jesus is being beaten, that Jesus is being accused, and so possibly Peter hears this in the background, and he is frightened. If you were there, what would you do? If you were standing shoulder to shoulder with the enemy, and you knew that if one more thing could possibly happen... If you were to say that you were with Jesus at that moment, you could be on the cross next to him. You want to keep talking as if Peter is this horrible guy. What would you do? What does Peter do? Look at this passage. Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Again, for a third time, he denies his relationship with Jesus. Now, something that I never knew about this part before I began to prepare for this message is that not only does he deny Jesus here for a third time, but Matthew and Mark tell us, and this is crazy, that Peter is cursing and he's swearing. You see, it's gotten to a point where just saying no is not enough. And so Peter feels like he has to prove himself. He has to go over the top to make it known that he is indeed not one of the disciples. And so he begins to curse Peter out of the same lips that came, Jesus is Lord and his Savior, and I will never forsake you, I will never leave you, is cursing about not knowing Jesus. And not only is he cursing, but we know that he makes an oath. As he makes this oath, this is, what, this is what he is saying. He is saying, I promise to God that I don't know Jesus. Now, does that sound a little crazy? Peter, the one that said, I will never leave you, Jesus. If all else fade, I will stand. He is swearing in front of the enemy, I swear to God that I don't know Jesus. He's swearing to God. Are you beginning to see the darkness? Are you beginning to see the discouragement, the despair, as we see how far the rock has fallen and how much his faith has been tested and how much Satan has sifted him and he's been crushed? Let's continue to read here. The rooster has crowed. In verse 61, the Lord turned and he looked straight at Peter and then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. This must be one of the most impassioned moments in all the New Testament 
apart from the crucifixion of Jesus. Did you see what that just said? The Lord turned and he looked at Peter. We don't know exactly where Jesus was at this point. Maybe he's being brought from the house of Ananias across the courtyard to the house of Caiaphas. Maybe Peter looks up and he sees Jesus up inside the home and Jesus is standing there being beaten, but Jesus turns and he looks out the window and as Peter looks up and as Jesus looks down, their eyes connect and it is this explosive moment of God's sovereignty. Do you think that that gaze was by mistake? That look, that moment had been planned since the beginning of time that Jesus would look with the eyes that Revelations chapter 1 says are blazing, with the eyes of love, with eyes of conviction, with eyes of passion. He looks at Peter, and Peter remembers. That word remember is such an important word because Peter is remembering now what Jesus has said that when the rooster crows three times, you will have denied me. Or I'm sorry, when you have denied me three times, you will hear the rooster crow. It's all coming together. And after Peter looks at Jesus, what does he do? He weeps. He weeps. And it's not just that he weeps like a little bit. We see that he bitterly weeps. He sees his depravity. He sees his fallenness. He sees his inability to do what he said that he would do. He sees the immensity of his sin. And this is the moment where through the darkness the light begins to illuminate. Do you see it? Do you see that this is the sovereign plan of a righteous God? Do you see that the plan now has unfolded and we see that the prayers of Jesus, the great mediator and the great high priest have indeed been answered. While this is a chaotic moment of cursing, of denying, of a rooster crowing, and of Jesus looking. It's a moment of beauty as we begin to see the righteousness of God triumph over the darkest possible sin. Now from that story, there are three things that I want to leave you with. There are three things that God has stirred in my heart and my spirit, three applications that I want to be able to send you out with. If you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to write these down as we see now what God might be able to teach us through this story as we see the fall of Peter and we see his denials and God's triumph. Check this out. The first thing is this. Spiritual overconfidence cripples us. Did you note how before we got here, how before we got to this place, it seems like there was a pattern that was building up before Peter had his denials. If you look with me in um, Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 to 33, this is huge. 
Then Jesus told them, This very night you will fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus there is quoting Zechariah 13, 7. He is looking at the disciples saying, Boys, you know what? It has been prophesied, it is written in God's Word in the Old Testament, Testament that you are all going to be scattered. And then he says this, But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And look at what Peter says. Look at his audacity. Look at his confidence. He says, after Jesus tells them this, Even if all fall away, on account of you, I never will. Jesus has just got done quoting Scripture. And, G- and Peter hears the Scripture and he says, you know what? That's not true about me. That's not true about me. I won't fall away. And so Peter does not heed the Word of God. Peter thinks for this moment in time that the word is not applicable for him and he doesn't listen. Jesus has been with him for three years. Jesus has never told him anything that's not true. But Peter believes that he can overcome God's word and he doesn't listen. Followers of Jesus, Christians that are in this room tonight, if you ever become so spiritually overconfident in your own ability not to read the Word of God and not to heed the Word of God, you are destined to failure. We must have a radical obedience to the Word of God. Maybe this is you. And here's just a practical example. You're laying in your bed at night and you have one of those moments where you remember, you know what? I haven't opened up my Word. But you tell yourself in your mind, it's only been a day. I'll I'll go ahead and I'll read the word tomorrow. I'll be fine. And so you drift off to sleep. Then the morning comes. It's almost noon. And you say, dang it. I forgot to open up the word. I forgot to, to read. I forgot to heed. And you continue to go on. And the evening comes and you say, you know what? I didn't read the word, but I still feel good. I still feel strong. And day after day, you do this. You are too overconfident in your faith. This is what Jesus says about the words of God. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, he compares it to this. He says, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus tells us that in order for us to live as followers of Him, we have to have the Word. If it was day three or day four, and you hadn't eaten any food, would you just go to bed? I mean, I don't know about you guys, but like I would be pounding everything in my fridge. I like to eat, you know? I mean, I like to, I like to eat. It's, it's a great experience, yeah. I would be eating. If on day or four of not heating and not reading and not experiencing God's Word, we aren't craving the word like we crave food but we're still saying i'm all right i can make it another day then friends you have become spiritually overconfident and you are on your way to spiritual failure i promise you cannot live 
without the word of God. Jesus says that I am the vine and you are the branches. And he who is a part of me, he bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. We have to be in relationship with Christ through his word. The other thing that we see Peter do is that he doesn't pray. Jesus tells Peter, he tells all the disciples, pray lest you fall into temptation. And what do we see Peter doing through all the verses that we've been reading? We see Peter talk a lot. We see Peter wield a sword and cut off the ear of the enemy. We see Peter here as he's in the enemy camp, he's following. We see Peter sleep while he's supposed to be praying. We see Peter talking. We see him acting. We see him sleeping. We don't see him praying, do we? Is it possible that he has become so confident and he's sorrowful at the same time, as Mark talked about last week, but he doesn't pray. I'm sharing some examples that are personal examples here because the one that I shared about, about going to bed and not reading the Word, I've been convicted of that in times of my life. Here's another one. Married couples. If you ever make statements like, you know what, my wife and I, we don't ever talk about divorce. We will never get divorced. If you make that type of statement and that statement is not followed by only by the mercy of God, only by God holding our marriage together, then you are spiritually overconfident. You don't have the power to keep yourself out of temptation. You don't have the power to be able to keep your marriage together. If you believe for a moment that you can go without praying and asking God to keep you out of temptation, to keep your eyes away from the opposite sex, to help you not to fight constantly with your spouse, if you think that you can do that without praying together, you have become spiritually overconfident and you are destining yourselves to spiritual failure. You don't believe me? Why don't you go and you ask any person in this room that has been recovering from a divorce and they'll tell you. You cannot hold your marriage together. You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. You need to pray. This is all things of life. It's not just about marriage. It's about everything. And the other thing that we see Peter do after he has failed to heed the word of God, after he's failed to pray, what do we see him do? He walks right into the midst of the enemy's camp. He's not prayed. He's not been in the Word. And he thinks that he can walk in to the world. He thinks that he can walk in in the midst of the enemy and he can be strong without taking the sword of the Spirit to slay the enemy, which is the Word of God, without being covered in prayer, he thinks that he can be strong enough in and of himself to be with the enemy. New believers here, there are many of you in the room right now. If you think for a moment that without bathing yourself in God's word and without praying for God to get you through temptation, that you can be around alcohol after you're recovering from an addiction with it, that you can be around your ex-boyfriend who used to lead you into all types of sexual sin, 
If you can be around that group of friends that you used to hang out with, that you used to get into all types of situations that caused you to sin and to be in places that you shouldn't have been in, if you think for a moment that you can do that without being in the Word, taking up the sword of the Spirit, without praying for God to protect you, you'll fail. I promise you're not strong enough. I can't tell you how many times people have come to either myself or Mark or Jeff and they've said, you know what, like I think that I'm ready to go out. I think I'm ready to go start hanging with my friends again that I used to hang out with before because I'm going to tell them about Jesus. And so they start hanging with them and they start living that life again. But they're not immersed in the Word. They're not covering themselves with prayer and they are ripped away just like Peter was in this story. You must be spiritually confident in Christ. We talk a lot about self-confidence in our culture, that everybody needs to be more self-confident. What is that? We don't need to have any self-confidence. We need to have Christ confidence. We need to have God confidence. We need to be confident in God not in ourselves. At the moment that I become confident in Jason Zelmer, I have messed it up and I'm going down. I don't have the ability to keep myself out of sin and every single time that I've tried, I've screwed up. I promise. We need Jesus. Peter needed Jesus. He was too spiritually overconfident. Here's the second thing. Christ prayers keep us. And this is the part where it shifts from that overwhelming distress and despair and discouragement to the overwhelming brilliance of the light of God, the overwhelming joy. Christians, as you're sitting here and as I talk about this next piece of this teaching, like you ought to have a permanent grin on your face. Not because I'm saying like something creative or because I'm a good speaker, all right? Because God's Word is so good. Why don't we get more excited about it? Check this out. Jesus has said in Luke chapter 30, in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, Peter, Satan is going to come and he is going to sift you, but I have prayed. I've prayed for you that you're going to turn and that you are going to make it your faith in the midst of the most horrible temptations and sin, your faith will remain strong, and you will turn, and you'll strengthen your brother. And guess what? Jesus' prayers work. Amen? His sovereignty is true. He turns. He weeps. There could be no more beautiful picture than to see this grown man who was so strong break down and bitterly weep. That is the sign of the heart that has been held by the gospel. That's the sign of a heart that has faith after sin. He weeps because he's broken over his sin. And we see Jesus as the great high priest. I want you to look with me in Hebrews. This is a passage that we've already talked about. Mark taught on it a few weeks back. But it says, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. 
speaking of Jesus as the great high priest who will be on the throne as the high priest forever, says, therefore, he is able to save completely those who have come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Followers of Jesus, when you fall, when you fail, when you are in the midst of temptation, when you are in sin, could you remember that you have Jesus mediating, praying for you, that you will turn back to Him and that your faith will be strengthened, that His prayers will keep you unto salvation. If we can't read that passage and think about the trials of our life and sometimes how hard they are and we can't smile, then there's something wrong. That's good news. That's exciting. Can we get excited about seeing Jesus as the high priest? The first time that Mark taught it, I wasn't excited enough. I don't think that I really get it. Can we just try to get it right now? Maybe we'll just keep teaching it every week until we get it, you know? We need to get it. He's praying for us. That's awesome. It's exciting. He doesn't just pray for Peter. He prays for all of us. And John chapter 17, one of my all-time favorite chapters in all of Scripture, this is what we see. Jesus, before he goes and before he's crucified and he's praying, he's not just praying for the disciples, but he's praying for all that will come and all that will follow him. Do we have John 17? Okay, there it is. Father, this is Jesus here speaking. He's, he's praying. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus is speaking to the Father, to God. He's praying and he says that he wants those who have been called to be with him. And if Jesus prays for it and he wants it, do you think that God is going to answer his petitions? Yes. He says that he wants us to be with him and he wants us to experience his glory. The prayers of Christ will keep us. And that's good news. They keep Peter. And that is God triumphing over the darkest moment. Here's the last thing. God's plan uses us. And I just... I love to think of it that way. That God has a plan for you and I for the trials of life that each of us are going to undergo. And that plan, because the trials are coming, amen? The plan that God has for my life and your life, may it be cancer, may it be death, may it be the loss of a loved one or a friend or a break in a relationship, God's plan will use us. God's plan uses Peter for his glory and for his sovereignty. And after God's plan uses Peter, it continues. And this is something about this passage to me that's beautiful. I want you to turn, um, or actually, you can just look on the screen here. But John chapter 21, verses 15 to 17. 
God had a plan for Peter. We see that plan unfolding as he goes through the trials. They weren't by mistake. They were planned by God. And after he goes through the trials, and after Jesus has prayed, and after he has turned, after he has wept, Jesus' plan is going to continue through the trials. And God is going to use the trials of Peter's life to strengthen his brothers, right? He promised that. And if you look with me, John chapter 21, verses 15 to 17. This is so amazing. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Peter says, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you, Jesus said. Feed my sheep. There is a process after our brokenness from sin happens. It's called repentance and restoration. And after the trials of Peter... Jesus had a plan to restore him to the ministry and to use him for the plan of building his church. But as he restores him, and this is after Jesus has been crucified and he comes back and he's speaking with Peter, how many times does Jesus ask Peter if he loves him? Three, right? How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three. Jesus is giving Peter the opportunity to be fully restored to the ministry and to be the shepherd that God was calling him to be after the trials. And guess what happens? Peter goes out. So we see the book of John end, and then Acts begins. And in Acts, we see Peter go and preach. And he preaches to a large crowd. Peter goes and he preaches to 3,000 people at Pentecost. And 3,000 are saved. And then he goes on and Peter preaches again. And 5,000 people are saved. And Peter is used by God to start his church. After he swore to the enemy on God that he didn't know Jesus. The greatest fall becomes one of the greatest recoveries. And so when we see Peter writing, and this is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, and when you pay attention to what Peter writes, check this out. Peter writes and he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He goes on to strengthen the church by saying, your faith will be tested. Trials will come. And God will use them to refine your faith, and He will use them to His glory. Now, there's many of you here tonight, myself included, where we have 
gain this spiritual overconfidence about us. We have not been heeding to the Word of God. We've not been in the Word, in the Word to transform us as followers of Jesus. We've had this idea that we can somehow go week after week after week and not be in the Word of God. Can we just stop messing around? Can we just get really honest tonight? There is a whole bunch of people in the room right now who have been coming to church week after week, who have been saying that they're a Christian, and you haven't even opened your Bible in weeks, months. But yet you still have this spiritual confidence. You are destined to fall. If that is you, may you tonight be strengthened. May you tonight be restored by the blazing eyes of Jesus as he uses his word to convict and challenge you. There's a whole bunch of people in the room tonight who have been acting as if they have a great prayer life. But the reality is, you talk about like wanting to know more about how to pray and that you know, you're not really hearing from God. But instead of really praying in your private moments or in public, you're sleeping, you're talking a lot of talk, you're doing a lot of things, maybe even in ministry, maybe we should stop talking so much. Maybe we should stop doing so much. Maybe we should stop acting the way that we act. Maybe some of you need to stop sleeping so much. Maybe you should spend more time praying. May God use tonight as a night to restore you. May God use tonight as a night to strengthen your faith as he uses the hard times of Peter's life to strengthen his. Maybe tonight there's some of you that have just been right up in the middle of the enemy's camp and you have failed. You have utterly failed and nobody in here knows it but you. And you need to be restored. You need to look into the eyes of Jesus and you need to see his love and his compassion and you need to be restored. Tonight, if any one of those are you, This is what we're going to do. The band is going to come up right now and we're going to begin a time of worship and a time of invitation. And here's the offering for you. We desire for this body to be a body that confesses sin honestly and that prays together openly. And so tonight, our lot family leaders are going to be in the back of the room here. And we are going to encourage you, if you have been wrestling with spiritual overconfidence, to go and to find one of our lot family leaders. There's going to be guys and there's going to be girls. We want to encourage you to go and to pray and just to get really stinking honest about your sin, to get really honest about the way that you have been living this fake life of Christianity. Let's get honest tonight. If we get honest, God can do amazing things the way that he does them through Peter. We could see thousands of people come to know Christ and we could see this town lit on fire by the power of God. So tonight, it's an opportunity to get honest. I'm going to invite you to stand with me right now and for a lot of family leaders to go ahead and go back. And if you desire to go and to pray and to get real about your life and where you are, then find your lot family leader. If you don't have a lot family leader, just find someone. If tonight you're here for the first time and you don't know Christ, but you want to have a relationship with Jesus, then go back. 
and tell them that you want to know more about being a Christian. Let's pray. Father, I pray tonight that you would work in our hearts and our lives. God, I pray that you would speak, that you would show up, and I pray that you would help us to look into the eyes of Jesus and to see who we are and see who you are and you would convict us, maybe even to the point of bitter tears, so that we could be restored. God, move. If you don't move, nothing will happen. In Jesus' name, amen.